Politicians and corruption. Since the beginning of time, these two terms seem to be synonymous with each other. And in today's hyper-informed world, things have seemed to be taken to an entire new level. From popular dramas such as House of Cards and Marseille, to the quote-unquote news that fill our household rectangles with images of the dark sides of the modern political system, politicians and corruption go hand in hand. When we think of presidential scandals, most people jump to Nixon and Watergate, or Bill Clinton and some conspicuous blue dress, or the endless parade of public speculation about the current U.S. president's shady actions, the daily barrage of people screaming and shouting of what is, what may be, and what could have been. But before any of these occurred, one of the first black eyes given to the Oval Office occurred early in the 20th century. In the early 1920s, a scandal that was hidden behind closed doors for quite some time surfaced for the public to see. It fractured the pristine public image of the executive branch by shining a bright light on the greed and corruption of those running the country. It would remain in the public consciousness until the Watergate scandal of the Nixon era. Today's topic is part one of Dose on Albert Bacon Fall and the Teapot Dome scandal of the 1920s. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the Plutarch Project podcast, a podcast based on subjects within the realm of the humanities, from history like today's podcast, to literature, to philosophy, to mythology, to you freaking name it, we got you covered. Now, it's time to put on your best three-piece suit, call up your choice bit of calico, and take a little sip on a bit of giggle water. We're headed back to 1909. Early in the 20th century, the U.S. Navy began to harness the power of oil. The glistening black blood of the earth was found to be the wave of the future in terms of powering large machines. Previously, all of the U.S. Navy's ships had been coal-powered, and probably not clean coal either for anyone wondering. Now let's take a second and think about this. Right now, we're at a time when we're beginning to shift over to electric-run cars. And at this time, everything had been coal-powered. Factories, ships, uh, so on and so forth, trains. But now, something is there. Something that is going to revolutionize the world forever. This is the type of change that is occurring at this point in time. And... The government is not known for being quick and on the ball about these things, but the Navy saw what was going to happen in the future. And seeing the power of oil as a fuel source, they began converting many of their ships from coal burners to engines harnessing the power of internal combustion. The future necessity of oil for military purposes led William Taft, the president, to set aside areas across the U.S. as oil reserves to protect the power of the Navy and the Army. Trucks, cars, and other technological advances would need oil too. President Taft issued an executive order that withdrew from private use 3,041,000 acres of land in sunny California and freezing balls cold Wyoming 
for excuse me, exclusive federal use. They kept these reserves as a form of insurance on the chance that they would, in the future, run out of easily accessible oil. It seems like a pretty forward-thinking idea, right? We're going to utilize this new technology. Oh, I guess it's not really new, but utilize this technology and save some of the resource that we need just in case something happens and we need it later. Sounds great. Sounds like a perfect idea, right? Okay, what could go wrong? Let's find out. Oil, much like steel and tobacco, had grown into massive business empires run by barons of industry. President Taft followed the precedent set by his predecessor, President Theodore Roosevelt, say that ten times fast, by suing large conglomerate corporations under the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 in attempts to smash the iron grip of monopolies that had squeezed the Americas throughout the 1800s and the first decade of the 20th century. The Sherman Hammer, as it came to be known, helped pave the way for other acts of legislation, including the more focused Clayton Act in 1914. Behemoths of industry were broken up into hundreds of private independent companies, allowing for competition in the marketplace and weakening the powerful grip of mega companies that had come into existence. One example is by a little known character known by the name of John D. Rockefeller. Haven't heard of him? <laughs> Get out of town and the Standard Oil Company. In the 1870s and 1880s, they used economic threats against competitors and secret deals with railroads to build a massive monopoly. With only a few minor players still in business, the Standard Oil Company was raking in the dough. In 1911, in the court case Standard Oil Company of New Jersey versus the United States, Standard Oil was found to have damaged the economic environment of its competitors. No kidding. And was subsequently broken into 36 separate companies competing with each other. Now, that's fantastic, that's interesting. But over time, a lot of those companies have once again merged back together. Companies such as ExxonMobil and Chevron. And there are a few other big-name players out there that are slowly but surely pooling themselves together as if they were the T-1000 from Terminator 2. But not all monopolies are bad. I know in modern times people often think of monopolies as purely negative structures, exploiting the masses for the benefit of a few. But... They did and continue to have some positive aspects as well. Such giants of industry have helped to build international commerce like the world has never seen before. It's helped to share ideas and technologies and other tools that would not be possible had giant conglomerate monopolies not existed. Even today, just think about the things that you carry with you every day. Your cell phone, your laptop, your Kindle even your car, think about how impossible that would be had there not been some foundation laid down for international trade and business by these huge mega companies. Think about the science and development as well. But, as critics will point out, and myself will wholly agree to, there's always a cost. And the question should be, is that cost worth it? Or no? And, and I think in a lot of instances, we can say it's definitely not worth the human capital that it costs. 
early in the 20th century, legislators tried to find the sweet spot where both companies and people could benefit, though companies tended to and continue to benefit quite a bit more. Then, events in Europe became the catalyst of change in the United States of America. The giant shadow of the so-called, quote, war to end all wars, World War I, reached across the Atlantic and grabbed the United States by the collar. Get over here! At first, American isolationism left America to have purely economical and humanitarian goals in regards to the battles raging across Europe. But soon, after the targeting of American merchant ships, Uncle Sam and company tossed their hats into the ring. Yee-haw! Awakening the giant of American industrialized warfare. World-renowned classicist scholar and poet A.E. Hausman, along with many of his contemporaries, wrote on the Great War. The following is a poem of his, Here Dead We Lie, which may help to set the stage for the feeling of this time and era. Here dead we lie, because we did not choose to live and shame the land from which we sprung. Life, to be sure, is nothing much to lose. But young men think it is, and we were young. Here in the 21st century, it's hard to imagine such an event as World War I and the lives that it must have echoed across, both in Europe and in the United States and all those other places that it touched for one reason or another. But let's take a moment and be happy that we're here in the 21st century in one of the most peaceful times, if not the most peaceful time, the world has ever known. Okay, now moving on. As to be expected, the world changed greatly after the First Great War. In the lingering shadow left by the conclusion of the war in 1918, Warren G. Harding was elected to be the 29th President of the United States. Uh, just do a little experiment this weekend. You know, go out, have a few beers, ask your friends if Warren G. Harding makes their top 10 presidents. Go ahead, get out there, find out. Before being elected president, Harding had been a rather successful newspaper publisher, an Ohio legislator, and a U.S. senator. That's quite a CV. His campaign promise was, a quote, return to normalcy, unquote. During one of his more potent campaign speeches, he noted, quote, America's present need is not heroics, but healing, not nostrums, but normalcy, not revolution, but restoration, unquote. His idea of normalcy was apparent even in his campaigning. He bought into the idea so much so that his campaign was rum from his front porch in Ohio. So many people came to listen to him that his lawn had to be replaced with gravel. What was his message? Well, I think it's a message that would ring true with today's audiences as well. He ran on a pro-business and anti-immigration platform that spoke to the quote-unquote average voter. What does that actually mean is uh, kind of up for grabs. But Harding and his running mate Calvin Coolidge 
one in the biggest landslide the U.S. had ever seen up to that point in time. They won 60% of the popular vote and 404 to 127 in the Electoral College. Aiding in his win was the amazing women of the country who had just months prior gained the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Now let's once again take a step back and think about this. World War I had just occurred. Up until that point of time, the great ladies of our country had not been able to vote. Can you imagine not being able to see your mother, yourself, your sister, your children be able to vote just because of something they do or don't have downstairs? Well, it took a lot of women, it took a lot of time, and it took a lot of fighting to get to this point. And Harding and his running mate, Calvin Coolidge, came at the right time and supported the right side of history. But it wouldn't always be true for Harding. Although he was a supporter of women's suffrage while a senator, there was a few other things that he was known for as well. One of them being womanizing. If you're watching on YouTube, you can tell from his photo that he was, in fact, quite the looker. He's a handsome gent. He had at least one illegitimate child with a mistress and was said to have at least four other affairs before becoming president. He was otherwise known to be a rather competent politician, with a few maybe, maybe not shady deals in the back rooms of the state houses, but hey, what can you do? At least all we can say is that the ladies loved him. Now, Harding was looking to be a man of the people and a pro-business candidate. Although it was rumored that during his time as a senator, he made backroom deals, he ran on a platform of conservation. Now, keep this in mind. At the beginning of this podcast, we noted about the natural reserves that had been conserved for the Army and the Navy's needs. Keep this in mind, right? So he ran on this platform of making sure that we conserved these types of resources just in case something came up in the future. Now, with that in mind, still sounds pretty reasonable, right? Let's keep these things protected for the day in which we need them. Now, many of you probably haven't heard of Harding's presidency, but if you have, you definitely have not heard of it in a positive light. Harding's presidency is widely regarded to be among the worst of American presidents. He, along with the help of his cabinet and Congress, promised to and followed through on reducing the flow of immigrants migrating to the free world, lowering taxes for corporations and wealthy individuals, and enacting protective tariffs to help maintain the status quo of the country's largest companies. This is all business as usual, and perhaps is still a message that would resound with quite a large part of the population today. Harding, in the eyes of his constituents, was certain to be a strong president with his eye on profiting large companies and the populace he governed over. Right? A little here, a little there, a little for you, a little for me, everybody wins, right? But it would be those whom he chose as his closest advisors that would lead to his eventual fall from public grace. Chief among them, Albert Baconfall, President Harding, Secretary of the Interior, and close friend. In fact, President Harding had some idea that his friends and partners would be his downfall. 
After taking office, he stated, quote, I have no trouble with my enemies. I can take care of my enemies in a fight, but my friends, my goddamn friends, they're the ones who keep me walking the floor at nights, unquote. This quote seems to accurately sum up his presidency. Harding himself appeared rather adroit in his new role as president, but he made a mistake that many leaders, past and present, have made, surrounding themselves with their friends and business associates, rather than those most qualified for the position. Not all of his choices were poor. Among his cabinet were people such as future President Herbert Hoover, and future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Charles Evans Hughes. Now, each one of these two individuals has their own story, and we're not going to go into it, but they ended up being incredibly successful in their roles. Well, I guess, depending on which way you look at it. It was those with which whom he aligned himself during his time as a senator that would eventually lead to his legacy as one of the worst presidents ever. Chief among those who would taint his time in office was Albert Baconfall. Albert Baconfall was born dirt poor on November 16, 1861, in the beautiful state of Kentucky, home and birthright of current longest-serving Republican U.S. Senator leader Mitch McConnell. Maybe we'll see a trend here. His formal education was a patchwork of comings, goings, and a lot of not-goings. He spent a lot of his time working in the cotton-pressing industry to help put food on the table for his family. After a while, Fall realized that working in such a place was a bit hard on the lungs. <coughs> he decided to move. Eventually, he settled in the wild west of New Mexico. Yeehaw! Despite his lack of formal education, Fall was an autodidact, capable of teaching himself the things necessary to find work and survive. He worked as a drugstore clerk and even a teacher, despite the fact that he never himself finished school. In 1883, he married, and by 1891, he passed the bar and became a lawyer, and simultaneously found his way into politics. It was the year 1890, and oh, what a year it was. Fall was running for the House of Representatives seat against the incumbent Albert Jennings Fountain. Fountain, a successful Republican candidate, was a former colonel for the Union, a lawyer who unsuccessfully defended outlaw Billy the Kid, and former president of the Texas Senate. He was kind of a Renaissance man. But this renaissance man had seen his day. Fountain lost the seat, and Fall began his rise to power. After obtaining the seat, Fall began making alliances with people who had stood in opposition to Fountain. Fountain continued his role as a prosecutor, dealing primarily with cattle rustlers. Now that's a place to make a lot of enemies in the old Wild West. One such enemy was a local rancher infamous for his penchant for gunfighting. Pew, pew, pew. His name was Oliver Lee. Pew. Lee and a few of his employees found themselves in Fountain's sights six years after Fountain's loss in the state election. 
Fountain was given the job of indicting them on the charge of cattle rustling. On Fountain's return from collecting indictments against Lee, he and his eight-year-old son disappeared, never to be seen or heard from again. The story goes that their wagon and team of majestic beasts had been found on the side of the trail, empty. Near the wagon, two pools of blood were found. For the locals, it was no mystery what had happened. Along with the father and son's missing bodies, their trusty Winchester rifle was also missing. At first, local outlaws were considered to be suspects, but Lee and his employees were always considered to be primary suspects as well. But this line of thinking was rife with problems, for in the meantime, Lee and two of his employees were actually official deputy lawmen. Wah, 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 pew, pew, pew. They'd received this position from Albert Bacon Fall, who had for a time become a judge. Not so shockingly, he lost his position later due to his involvement in a vote-fixing scandal. Surprise, surprise. Nevertheless, Lee and company had a certain level of protection even after Fall left the position. For several years, Infamous outlaw hunter Pat Garrett, the man who killed Billy the Kid, gathered evidence against Lee and company, and in 1898 got approval to arrest them. But Fall had gained a new title in 1897. He was now the Attorney General of New Mexico. Yeehaw! Pat Garrett led a posse in pursuit of Lee and eventually caught up with him. This led to a murderous shootout in which one of Garrett's deputies was shot dead. Uh, why'd you do it, Lee? Lee and a companion escaped. Later, seeing the writing on the wall, they turned themselves in under the condition that it was not Garrett who would take them in. Shortly after the trial was set to be in Hillsboro, New Mexico, Albert Fall, who had by this time concluded his time as Attorney General, was Lee's lawyer. Fall highlighted the fact that no bodies or further evidence had ever been found. It was pure speculation on the part of the prosecution that Lee and company had committed the crime against Fountain family. Furthermore, several claimed witnesses did not attend the trial due to being missing or intimidated by Lee's supporters. Lee's supporters also attended the trial, or lingered near the courthouse, exercising their right to bear arms. It was clear from the start of the trial that Lee would get off scot-free, and he did. Although Fall had finished his time as a judge and attorney general, his powerful grip was still felt both in and outside of the courtroom. For the next decade, Fall grew more and more wealthy off of working the courts for mining firms and investing his own funds in mining operations, increasing his power and prestige even more. Albert Fall's story keeps seeming to circle back around and back around the same people over and over again. For instance, outlaw hunter Pat Garrett was murdered 10 years later in a dispute over grazing rights. Lee's brother-in-law paid the suspected murderer's bail, and Albert Fall defended him in court. What a shocker. 
working his magic inside the court once more, the murder was given the not guilty verdict, despite overwhelming evidence pointing to Garrett being ambushed and killed in cold blood. Four years later, New Mexico gained statehood, opening the door for Albert Fall to become a state senator. The competition for the seat was heated. Whew, it's getting hot in here. Fall, seeing the impossibility of two Democrat senators winning, switched allegiances to become part of the Republican Party, essentially stealing a seat from New Mexico's Hispanic community. Despite the rage and misgivings by other Republicans, Fall won, and won again in 1913, despite a recount called by the governor of New Mexico, who had considered his winning illegal. Again, in 1916, he won. By 1916, he had made quite a few powerful allies in Congress and was a member of the so-called, quote-unquote, Ohio Gang, whose leader was... Warren G. Harding. This is where Albert Fall's tale officially joins that of today's main focus, the Teapot Dome Scandal. Coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, this is also the end of part one of Albert Bacon Fall and the Teapot Dome Scandal. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look at the Teapot Dome Scandal, and I'm sure you're going to be surprised at the things people were able to get away with. Or perhaps you won't be shocked by anything anymore. Hey, who am I to say? Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Sorry for the long break between this podcast and the one before. I had a beautiful, gorgeous baby girl born, and I took the time to enjoy that time with her. So thank you for your patience. Also, in the next episode, look out for our next giveaway. It's been a year since our last one, and we're going to have another one this year with the beginning of our next episode. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Peace, love, happiness. Good day! Pew, pew, yeehaw!